This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I envision a world where every B2B SaaS startup succeeds because they're creating software that customers would miss if they were gone. And here's why. Research consistently shows that 90% of all startups fail, and that's bad. What's worse, however, is that 75% of SaaS scale-ups fail, companies that are supposed to have product market fit. Far too few scale-ups create the traction they aspire for and fail for the wrong reasons. And I believe this should stop. And hence I created my business. And the goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. First, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. Secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what it requires to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast this week is Patrick Uhler, co-founder and CEO of Retorio. Our investors told us don't, don't sell to these clients because they're way too big, they're way too complicated. You know, don't do enterprise sales. You don't know how to do that. You know, just go for the small ones. You know, this one you can scale way more quickly. And we always try to do that. But then once again, the enterprise clients signed up and they were like, we're going to pay more and we're going to pay more. And they offered us big amounts of money to use the technology. And at some point we said, okay, maybe we should stop resisting. This is Patrick. He was born in Munich, Germany. After graduating from high school, he studied information-oriented business administration at the University of Augsburg and management and strategy at the London School of Economics. Subsequently, he completed his doctorate in organizational research at the Technical University of Munich, where he researched behavioral patterns in organizations. This is where he and his co-founder Christoph Hohenberger stumbled upon a big idea that would spark the birth of Vittorio, which he now leads as the CEO. Vittorio is on a mission to create a world where people feel accepted, satisfied and fulfilled in their work, relationships and company culture. How? By spotting success patterns in teams, hiring matching talents and developing them into top performers. And this inspired me and hence I invited Patrick to my podcast. We explore what's broken in the way we do recruitment today, particularly in large organizations. Patrick shares how simply changing the order of doing creates a revolution one that creates unbeatable organizations. He digs into how he created traction by niching down and honing in on the most valuable and critical use case. He shared a fascinating story about how he ignored advice from investors on who to target and who not to target. And with that, found a market that's prepared to pay a premium and now represents 80% of his revenue. Last but not least, he shares his experiences on what it takes to create a software business that cannot be ignored. And by listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly, how flipping the process can be the key to creating a product that creates a revolutionary impact. Secondly, how a compelling vision can attract critical resources to your startup that are even prepared to work for you for free. Thirdly, 
how to break the barriers to getting customers to sign up for demos. And fourthly, why your go-to-market should be ultra-specific, even though your platform can support hundreds of use cases. So hi Patrick, thank you for making the time available today to be the guest on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Ton. It's one of those that I've been looking forward to actually, and it has to do with the fact that the purpose of my podcast, the way I started it, was always about sort of augmentation cases. I see that again in, in what you're doing with Retorio. And we talked a little bit about, about it well, before we were recording this. I think it's going to be a very interesting podcast in itself. But before we start, just to kind of yeah, introduce yourself in a little bit of a different way. If you would have to describe yourself in two or three words, what would it be? Well, I'm sort of the jack of all trades, you might say, in this company. Okay. So um, I'm in this role where... I take care of the problems that nobody else wants to take care of. That's, I think, the best way to describe me. Anything beyond like, that is, or the, <laughs> kind of particularly good at this? So that's that's why. No, I, I say, think okay, that's that's the, the that, 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 that's the best definition of what I do, right? So whenever you have a task that really nobody wants to do, then it basically ends up with me. So that's how I define myself. And like everything that's sort of fun to be solved, you know, all the problems that have a clear solution, they will be solved by somebody else. And whenever there is something where you're like, okay, this is really a problem nobody wants to deal with, then I come into play and I have to deal with that. (laughs) That's me. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, well, I mean, (laughs) just kind of make a little bit fun around that. What has been the latest problem that you had to solve, that you had to laugh about possibly? Well, I mean, a lot of small minor issues, like including ordering drinks for the office or taking care that people have a key to open the door, right? So sometimes it's really stupid little things, but I have to say I also have to take care of some of the bigger challenges, including yeah, fundraising, which is also something that people don't really like to do. And that unfortunately, as a founder, you have to take care of yourself. And also a lot of it is really sort of, um, yeah, basically working on the product, working with the clients, getting their feedback, getting the feedback to the product team. But yeah, a lot of the cool stuff that's really sort of straightforward and fun to do, a lot of this will be done by other people at this point. And for me, it's more about focusing on those problems that right now, you know, need special attention. Yeah, yeah. hopefully that's not always there opening the door. Okay, good. <laughs> well, make, let's make the bridge to your company, Retorio. Started in June 2017, I saw on LinkedIn. What sparked the idea to go and do it? Like what was the problem that you saw in the market that was screaming for a solution? Yeah. I mean, initially, so we are a university spinoff, right? So my co-founder, Christoph, and I, we used to be PhD students. And the thing that as PhD students really fascinated us and still fascinates us is understanding humans, understanding human behavior, and basically understanding the magic of what makes organizations work, which is the sort of crazy interplay of many different humans who interact and who are very difficult to predict, right? And as PhD students, we were looking for ways to make human behavior more understandable and more predictable. And we realized that a great way to get to know people is to basically observe them, to look at how they work, how they communicate. And a great way to do so is to work with video data, because in videos, you get to see people, you can listen to them, you can, you hear their voice, you, you see their face, you see their facial expression, you see their gesture. And we saw that this is a very valuable data point in order to really understand, you know, how people behave and why they behave in a certain way. And so we started developing algorithms to quantify human behavior and make it measurable in mathematic terms, right? And yeah. these algorithms, they became yeah, more and more of a product from time to time. And we understood that that the one problem that organizations have is that, you know, they're very focused on managing processes and they're very good at 
mitigating risks and that legal stuff and so on. But the one factor that they can't control is, is the people, right? Because people do human things and human things are very difficult to predict. And, and what we try to do with the technology is bring in more data and really, you know, make human behavior more understandable, more observable, and therefore take this human data point in order to make better decisions. Uh, that's the initial idea behind it. Cool. So what is the opportunity if people start to adopt Retorio? I mean, what is it before and after? Yeah, this is so, so, so what we do with Retorio is we, we call it behavioral intelligence, right? So for us, it's yeah. about getting to know the human person behind a data point that you usually have in HR systems. And what we do for our clients is so our key target client is enterprises, sometimes also mid-sized companies who try to build more customer-centric teams, right? So this is our focus market. It's, it's usually, you know, can be sales organizations, can be big retail organizations, it can be consultancies, usually organizations who very strongly are based on their customer interactions and who very rely on, on being successful in dealing with their clients, right? And we basically help them what we call spot, hire, and develop customer-centric talents. So uh -huh. spotting means we look in the existing team and we analyze the behaviors of the people in the team and we try to figure out, you know, what is the culture of the team, you know, How do people behave in these teams and what makes them successful? And then we transfer these insights into the hiring process where we basically collect video applications and analyze the behavior of candidates and match them against the best people in the organization in order to figure out who really fits into the performance culture of the organization. And nowadays we take it even one step further and we use our insights to onboard and train people. So by analyzing you know existing people within the organization we understand what makes them successful and this way we can generate best practices and those best practices we can transfer into the newly hired people so for instance we do sales trainings where people face simulated clients and our ai tells them how other people in the organization you know behave in situations like that and how they for instance close a deal and this altogether this circle of spot hire and develop it creates this feedback loop through which our AI better and better gets to know our clients and their culture, you know, and their performance patterns and step-by-step step can basically help them transform their organization to become more customer-centric. Really cool. I've had a number of people on my podcast that were in the, in the hiring space and what they are, they are, of course, only focus at is like, okay, what are the capabilities of people and is this what you're looking for? But what you're doing here is actually create sort of a flywheel Yeah. You start with, okay, what makes this organization successful and unique? And how do we, based on our unique pattern, so to say, or how do you say our DNA fingerprint, how can we find more of those people? I really like that. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe just to add to this, so, so existing software, in a sense, has always been limited by several factors. And, and one factor is recruitment software so far has been very focused on recruitment, but the software quite often doesn't really understand what job it is supposed to recruit for because it doesn't have internal data that helps the software figure out who you're really looking for, right? Yeah. So, so that's a big problem we face. And the other problem is that existing recruitment software very much relies on CV data, on typical HR data, like birth dates and high school degrees, like things that you can simply put in into a form and that you can easily, you know, put in a system. But what it's really about in most jobs is about finding personalities that fit into the culture and that fit into the job and that you know, bring in the motivation and all these things 
so far were not really visible because you didn't have data on it, right? And, and that's sort of the two gaps that we fill with the technology. Yeah, and in the meantime, you help the operation, like the people in the field, the people that are actually doing the job get better and better and better. Yeah. Based on I mean, sharing those nuggets that makes the organization unique again. Yeah. I like the flywheel thought of it. And it's really, an, I mean, like I said in the beginning, it's an augmentation type game rather than an automation game in itself. So it's really helping to make both the organization and the people that work for them better. Nice. So it started from the university. There's always an interesting project to work on. You started to see patterns and suddenly you decided, okay, let's stop here and get started with the company. So you're now five years down the road. I mean, I think in those times, 2017, this wasn't really, this was early days, possibly ahead of its time already. And then we just look at what five years have done in the meantime. How did this get started? I mean, like where did you start to create something that was going to make the biggest impact? And what did you decide to do? And, and possibly well, what did you decide not to do in this case or to leave to others? Yeah, I'd love to pretend that there was a big master plan you know, in a big <laughs> vision in the beginning. The truth of it is it was a very iterative process, right? So I think one thing my co-founder, Christoph, and I always had in common or one, one thought we shared is that there's so much scientific knowledge out there, right? Which to us as PhD students was somewhat accessible, but even to us as PhD students, it wasn't really accessible because there's thousands of papers. You know, maybe you read 200 of them, right? But there's thousands of insights out there and all this knowledge is out there. It is available, but it is not really in use in a practical sense because nobody can really process all this information, right? And so we thought, okay, there must be a way to take all this knowledge, you know, this, this sort of crowd knowledge that is out there. It can be knowledge shared by individual, you know, decision makers. It can be knowledge shared in published papers and peer-reviewed studies and databases. But like, how can we make this more accessible, you know, to practitioners? And so we started thinking about AI and we thought, okay, AI could be an interesting way to go there. And that's how we started, you know, exploring, you know, different algorithms and trying to figure out what is AI actually, where is it at, you know, what is the kind of state of the art? And, and that's how we started approaching it. And then step by step, you know, we started working on our own AI, right? And we quickly realized that it's very difficult to access all this knowledge out there because it's very difficult to connect your own AI to that. So we started instead on working with video data because we realized, well, from video data, you get so many different insights. And you can analyze these videos and you can interpret them in scientific models. And then you can connect these models to the academic insights, to the academic databases out there. Okay. And so you can basically connect, you know, individual video data of people interacting a certain way. And you can interpret this by connecting it to basically all the science that is out there. Right. And that was the initial idea. Like we just wanted to figure out if that is possible. And so we... Yeah brought a bunch of students on board. And I mean, that was one of the privileges we had as PhD students at a technical university that there is hundreds of thousands of students who are engaged and who have time and who want to collaborate. And we basically got very good at engaging them and motivating them to basically work for us for free in the beginning. And we started this sort of student project. And the idea of it really was, we called it Emolve. So the idea was, you know, emotion and evolution to somehow create a little bit of a sort of revolution where we said, okay, we want to, you know, use AI in order to help people, you know, find out more about themselves and find out more about why they are perceived in a certain way and, you know, why they might be, you know, doing well in their career or not. 
And this was a message that the students were very interested in. And so we built the student team. They brought in more and more knowledge and step by step. And we built the first prototype. And the first prototype was actually a little bot that would connect to your webcam and it would analyze you like in very basic terms, right? And it would tell you based on scientific insights, right? How other people were likely to perceive you depending on what you did. And this little bot would basically mimic you and reflect back to you, you know, how a person in that moment would perceive you, right? And the idea was to use this as a sort of communication trainer for, for students that would help them present better, for instance, or become more exciting or prepare for a job interview. And then we presented this bot on various, you know, conferences and occasions. And what quite fascinated us is that whenever we presented it to people, like there was always a bunch of people coming to us after our presentations, most of them mid-level managers from tech companies who said, oh, this is interesting. You know, this thing can, you know, help me figure out, you know, why I'm not progressing in my career or why as a leader, I'm not progressing to the extent that I thought I was, you know, and like some of them told us, you know, like we are mid-level managers in engineering departments, whatever. And our superiors, they sent us to one communication training after another to improve on our skills because they think we need to become better at engaging our employees and none of it ever worked, you know, and somehow we think, that this technology might solve this problem for us, yeah. right? And so this is how we started becoming commercial, you know, by basically talking to these mid-level managers and they brought us into the HR teams of their companies. Yeah. And then we realized that the biggest market for this technology is customer-centric hiring and training. Yeah. So sales jobs, service jobs, consulting jobs, because there it's only about, you know, soft skills and personality. And, and we saw that there's a big market there that we can fill basically. Fascinating, fascinating. And yeah, it's interesting to see how different startups get started. And for you, it, like, it started from the research and then suddenly you sort of you stumble across problems that you could possibly solve because the market is coming to you saying, yeah. telling you. So then you decided, okay, we're going to commercialize this. We're going to bet on a particular use case. I really like the fact that you've yeah, niched down in terms of, okay, it's going to be about customer-centric teams because of course you can also say this can be for everyone. How is that niching down help you? It helps in fundraising for sure, because investors really want to have the feeling that you have a clear focus and a clear plan, yeah. right? So in that sense, it helps. It also helps you a lot in marketing and messaging, right? Because of course, I mean, you said it yourself last time, right? The HR tech market is a very crowded sphere and you need to get attention, right? And the more specific you are with your messaging, yeah. the easier it is for you to get clients to book a demo with you and to engage with your product. And the interesting thing is, like quite often we start very specifically with very specific messaging, but once we start talking to actual people, you know, who sign up or something, quite often our focus already, you know, broadens, you know, and a lot of the clients, they realize, oh yeah, you know, I booked a demo with you because I wanted to use this on sales hiring, but actually I can also use it for leadership positions. I can also use it for service positions. I can also use it on my, you know, interns or whatever, right? And basically the niche is really just a way to get into these clients and start working with them. And the moment we start working with them, we very quickly expand yeah. into different use cases. Yeah. 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 I mean, you got to make a couple of clear points. The funny about the fundraising, by the way, I mean, yes, of course they want to niche down, but they also want you to, of course, address an as high as or as large as possible TAM, total addressable yeah. market. So often they also say like, why did you go a little bit broader with this? There's always conflicting messaging there, but I agree with you on the messaging side. And also the funny thing is that you actually, it's sort of a hiring case, but on the other end, it's connected to something that's connected to revenue. And as a consequence, the value perception of the solution is way higher. 
that's why we love customer centric hiring, especially sales, right? Because in sales hiring, first of all, it's all about personality and soft skills. And it's quite easy yeah. to make that clear to the clients. I mean, the, like every executive who's ever led a company knows that your salespeople is the people that drive your revenue and therefore the overall success of your company. Yeah. And especially if you're sort of in a growth market and if you're VC funded, right? And at the same time, they all know how incredibly difficult it is to find good salespeople because yeah. every person applying for a sales job is trying to sell themselves and they all, in a sense, pretending. And you need to figure out, you know, who can really do the job and who's just basically good at selling themselves in that moment, right? And that's something where the more experienced people are, the more they know that they can't trust their gut feeling in these situations because yeah. they've done enough bad hires in the past to know that it has, you know, let them down the wrong route before. And so they more and more start questioning themselves and they look for data to really make their point because they know, well, you know, quite often, you know, a lot of the salespeople are not that obviously great. It takes time to realize who really can do the job. And if they look back into the best salespeople they ever hired, they often realize that some of them were completely, you know, opposed to their initial cliche, right? And so it's a great starting point. It's a great point to also showcase the return on investment of our technology because well, in sales, if you hire the wrong people, you know, you don't just have the cost of mishiring, but you really oh, yeah. lose revenue. And that's the really badly hurting part because, exactly. you know, and maybe a mishire costs you 50,000 euros, 100,000 euros in wasted salaries and like a long hiring process. But the thing that really bothers you is that this person that you hired is not making the 300,000, 500,000, 1 million euro in revenue that you yep. expected that person to make. And that's what really hurts, right? And in sales, that's very easy to show, you know, that you can fix that problem. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, in that journey and bringing the solution to market, what has been a decision that has been very important kind of in hindsight? Interesting question. I think there have been a lot of very important decisions on the way for sure. I think the most important thing is to find your niche, right? And don't get distracted too much but also not to find that niche too quickly. And I think this is something that we always had like these moments in our history where we thought we found the right niche for us and we didn't focus on it. And that mostly was a good thing to do because if you find your niche too quickly and you quickly focus on something, there's a high chance that you focus on the wrong thing, right? And for us, I think we always tried out different you know, directions, yeah. but we kept... The actual technology that we developed, we kept it sort of use case agnostic and we kept the models as generic as possible just to make sure that if that niche that we think might be our market, you know, if that doesn't work out, that the technology itself can cater to a hundred different cases, you know, and then we just need to change the storytelling and the marketing around it, but we don't need to change the overall product. Let me make a small interruption here. Patrick just made an excellent remark about their secrets to get rapid traction. Just because their solution could support hundreds of use cases, it wasn't relevant to their sweet spot persona. So Ritorio focused on niching down with ultra position, finding their most valuable and critical use case to find the easiest way in, and then expanded from there. It's a trade remarkable software company's master. They realized they cannot please everyone. Niche down an extreme to the group where their offering is most valuable and desirable, create early fans, and create momentum from there. You can master these traits as well. And the first step, simply read my book. I've made the electronic version available for free. Just visit theremarkableeffect.com to grab your copy and inspiration will start within the first 10 minutes. 
Back to the interview. And I think this technological flexibility, you know, in creating an AI that ultimately is designed to understand humans, but it's not ultimately focused on sales hiring or sales training. It's the AI itself. It's really focused on understanding human behavior and interpreting it, but it doesn't care about the context in which it happens. And this allows us to basically step by step, you know, try out different things without having to change the underlying technology. And we had those attempts, right? So there was a time where we thought we would only be a video recruitment software, you know, yeah. but then some clients started using it for training purposes. And we realized, well, it's the same product, basically, we just need to frame it a little bit differently. But the AI doesn't care if it's analyzing, you know, candidates who apply for a job, or if it's analyzing existing employees, right? The same is true for internal assessments, or if you want, you can use it for dating purposes or to analyze live video calls, like the technology can do that. Just the sales and marketing story for that, there we have a certain focus, because we can't tell all these stories at the same time. But the technology itself is ultimately flexible. Very cool. Thanks for sharing that. And that's, I think it's going to give a lot of companies a couple of aha moments here. And it's interesting that you say at the beginning, it's like sort of niching out until you find like those fires that start burning and you get a little bit of repetition. And then it's, then you start betting or oh, niching down on those opportunities and, and bring it further. In that whole process, what has been the hardest nut to crack for moving it forward? So I think that there's several ones. One important thing we had to figure out. So, so first of all, of course, we had to find the right use case and niche, but we also had to find the right target persona, the right, basically, target client, right? And we always thought that this technology is perfectly suited for small scale-ups, you know, like young startups that need to hire big sales teams, you know, and grow very fast. And everything we did was designed to cater to that target group. But then when we looked at the companies signing up and basically buying the technology, quite often it turned out to be large enterprises, like really big companies with our biggest client has 650,000 employees. And our investors told us, don't, don't sell to these clients because they're way too big, they're way too complicated. You know, don't do enterprise sales. You don't know how to do that. You know, just go for the small ones. You know, this one you can scale way more quickly. And we always try to do that. But then once again, the enterprise clients signed up and they were like, we're going to pay more and we're going to pay more. And they offered us big amounts of money to use the technology. And at some point we said, okay, maybe we should stop resisting. And if these large enterprises, if they really want to use us so badly, why fight against it, right? So step by step, we more and more sold to those big enterprises. And that turned out to be, yes, that's not to crack because they have long enterprise sales cycles. Yeah. You have to go through data privacy councils and you have to talk to whatever legal councils and Germany, the unions and so on. But we got through all these stages with surprisingly little resistance quite often. And once we were in, like those clients, they didn't turn to churn, you know, they tended to stay and they tended to upsell step by step, you know, and become bigger and bigger and bigger. And, yeah. and although all our marketing and the way how we hired salespeople was all targeted to SMB clients, yeah, yeah. like after a year or something, 80% of our revenues were coming from huge companies. And then we at some point said, okay, maybe... That's our story. <laughs> Maybe there's something there. Yeah. And we still somehow thought, well, this technology makes so much more sense for, you know, tech savvy young companies who want to grow. And, and we still have a bunch of those clients. Don't get me wrong. Right. But 80% of our revenue is really big enterprises and they don't churn, you know, they stay and they expand. What do you believe is the magic for them? Like, why are they like banging on your door to have this? Yeah, that's something we realized on the way that first of all, you know, just to name an example, we have this big automotive client, like a local 
premium automotive company here, and they have 30,000 salespeople around the world, right, working in dealerships. And you have a chief sales officer or however he's called, who's sitting in his headquarters and he wants to build a more customer-centric, you know, sales-oriented culture. But how can he do that? Right? He doesn't really know much about those 30,000 people who are distributed around the world. He doesn't know how they do sales. He doesn't know why some of them sell five times as many cars as others, right? All he gets is those performance numbers that are reported up to him. And if they look good, then he's happy and he doesn't need to do much. And if they look bad, then he needs to hire people who fire people and then hire new people. Yeah, but yeah. it's very difficult for him to basically in any way control how people around the world do sales, right? And at the same time, this organization is in a big transformation. They need to become more customer-centric. They need to, yeah. they now sell electric cars rather than conventional cars. They need yeah. to sell autonomous driving and so on. And the whole mindset needs to change. And what he really likes is that through our technology, first of all, he gets aggregated, but very precise data on what personality, you know, what behavior really drives the success culture in his organization globally, right? So he can look at a dashboard and it will tell him, you know, your typical salesperson in this and that market, you know, has, you know, the following traits and these are the reasons why they are successful, right? And he can then use these insights in order to hire more people that fit into this performance culture. He doesn't, you know, need to hope that he hires people who hire people who hire recruiters who then hire the right salespeople, but he can directly in our software, basically tell the software, you know, in which direction he wants to move the culture of the organization and the software automatically can benchmark incoming applications against his sort of target culture. And at the same time, he can generate best practices, right? And transfer them internally and make sure that, you know, young, new salespeople learn from the best, most experienced salespeople, right? So this knowledge that's very difficult right now to transfer because it's very much about behavior and how people communicate and how you talk to a client, right? And scale. That suddenly, yeah, he can scale that globally between markets, within markets, within dealerships, across dealerships. And that's for him completely new option he didn't have before. And that's true for most of our clients. So they like the idea that they can basically create this wheel, right? And transform the culture in a different direction through just a few bars that they have to shift within the software. Fascinating. I think they see it as a competitive advantage, like a secret that the others don't have. But it's yeah, it's the case. And I can imagine why they are yeah, knocking on the door, not even knocking, like banging the door down. Like we need this now. Is it maybe also the reason why it was so easy to get through all the tests and the privacy and the unions, like you said? Because what I hear as well is there, there are mm. no losers. That's and the thing. Is, yeah, It's about making people better. It's not about automating them out of a job. It's about making the good better, the best, keep them the best and give everybody something to strive for. Yeah. I mean, that's something a lot of people in the beginning, they said, well, you're dealing with an AI that analyzes behavior and predicts personality based on behavior. Like there's no way you will ever get this through a data privacy council in a major German enterprise, for instance, right? And in the beginning, we thought they might have a point, you know, because it's a very, you know, cutting edge, you know, very advanced technology. And then we start talking to the data privacy officers and to the union representatives and we told them what the tech actually doing which is to give you as an employee a hundred percent honest feedback on how you are being perceived by other people you know but we can do that in a completely anonymized you know um, alleged way where basically only you as an employee you know get this data and 
all the data we present to the management level or something is completely aggregated and doesn't allow any direct conclusions on any individual employee, right? And so what you suddenly have is like a 100% anonymized way of improving your sales skills, your communication, you know, getting feedback that even with a human coach, you wouldn't have because with that human coach, first of all, those coaches are only available to selected employees, usually more on the higher level. Second of all, those coaches very much focused on the most extroverted employees because they are on the same page, you know, so a lot of people get left behind in the process. And those coaches, well, they sign some NDAs and so on, but in the end, they will talk to your boss. And how can you as an employee be sure that this coach is not telling your boss about how bad you are at communicating, right? But with the AI, you know, people tend to trust the technology more than they trust other humans in that sense, because they know the technology doesn't care, right? If you tell the AI to forget about a person or to ignore the gender or the skin color or the age of a person, for the AI, that's just a variable and it just deletes it, right? Yeah. For human, you can't delete that information. So it's in there. You remember faces, right? Yeah. It's fair. It's based on like doing good. And people that are going to fail, I mean, why even hire them in the first place? If they're going to be set up for fail, you know, like save them that stress as well. Yeah. It's not just stress for that person, obviously, who might have Everyone. been way better off, but it's stress for the team. It's stress for the whole organization that can be put at risk. And like a wrong hire, especially a wrong culture, if it can drag down a whole team and a whole company, even the union representatives very much agree with this. You know, you need to hire very carefully and focus on culture fit and because pre-experience becomes less and less relevant in many jobs. Yeah, that's very, very correct. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What has been your biggest obstacle to overcome in this whole process? I mean, you know, 2017 solution came to market. You're obviously selling now successfully to large organizations. Has there been any specific thing where you were like, whoa, how are we going to overcome this one? Yeah, I guess plenty of <laughs> of little roadblocks on the way. And um, let me think, what's the biggest one? So I think, ironically, the biggest problem we faced in the beginning was that a lot of end users were skeptical about AI and about recording themselves on video and you know sharing videos with an AI that would judge you basically, right? And there, I think we really had, in a sense, sounds cynical, but we had luck with the whole COVID situation. Because when we started this technology, a lot of people did not know how to share their webcam on their computers. They never did that before. You know, They were super afraid of, like a lot of people have never been in a video call until beginning of 2020 and they didn't know about zoom and then some of them used skype before fair enough with yeah. their family or something but a lot of people in their business context were not used to freely you know sharing their webcam their microphones and interacting with a device right and for us that's been a game changer because suddenly it became the new normal to be on video all day long and to be recorded i mean you're recording me in this moment and i didn't think about it for a second because it became part of our life, right? And yeah. that made this whole medium video data so much more easy to get into our system. You know, before that, our biggest challenge was, you know, getting companies to 
buy devices for the employees so that these people could record themselves. And now it's just standard, you know, like it's not a thing anymore. So in a sense, that was a big obstacle that basically solved itself, you might say. I think a big problem we faced in the beginning is the public sort of attitude towards AI in HR context. So a lot of yeah. people are afraid that AI might, you know, prolong or like enforce human biases and basically lead to more discrimination yeah. rather than avoiding it. And that's something where we really need to educate our clients and also the public by basically telling them, well, first of all, our AI does not discriminate. It's been trained not to see age, gender, skin color, and so on. But even if AI did discriminate, the only reason why I would do so is because it learns from human decision-making. And the underlying problem is never the technology. The underlying problem is always the human data from which AI learns, right? Yeah. yeah. That women do certain things better than men in certain cases. Yeah, and quite often in hiring, the problem is that you're dealing with companies that have systematically, for instance, not hired women in the past. And yeah. if you would now train a technology to hire people based on their past decisions, then this technology, yes, it would learn to also not hire women, right? And sure. there's a famous tech company that has made that experience. But the good news is, first of all, by using the AI, first of all, for the first time, you can see that this is happening, right? And you can start working on it. And once you realize that this is a problem, you can very easily, you know, find control variables and improve your models to avoid that problem, right? And quite often the public outcry is always like, oh my God, there's an AI and it might, you know, discriminate against women. Let's switch it off and go back to normal. And then they don't understand that, well, the only reason the AI did that is because the normal, you know, circumstance is, is this discrimination, right? And the AI just sort of made it visible. And But we can see that generally the public is becoming more and more educated and they more and more learn that basically that human decision making might be more at fault than the technology, right? Yeah. Do you also follow this whole movement around ethical AI and open AI or is against black box AI? Yeah, sure. No, I mean, we are part of that, right? And we try to create um, our models in a way that they are as much transparent as possible, right? That's yeah. obviously with some AI methods somewhat challenging because, well, the more transparent you make your models, the more you might lose accuracy and precision because, well, the more, how should I say, the more sophisticated the models are, the better they tend to work, but the more sophisticated they are, the more difficult it is to understand them, right? And so for us, we very much focused on not so much showing exactly how our models work in terms of, because those are complex neural networks and yeah. it's very difficult to make that visible, but showing people exactly what data these models learn from and testing these models extensively, very aggressively against all kinds of public data sets to show how accurate they are, right? And how reliable they are. Fascinating. I told you in a previous conversation about the fact that I wrote a book around what well, the, the traits, you, you talked about traits as well before, for people, but what traits software companies need to have in order to become those businesses that people start talking about and that we keep talking about? What do you believe are secrets that you need to, well, or traits that you need to incorporate in your business in order to become remarkable? That's an interesting point. Um, I think if there was a general recipe that you could just follow, then there would be, then everyone would do it, right? And I think there is not this one recipe, right? This one trait that makes you successful. It's more about finding your sweet spot, right? And this is something I realized by engaging a lot with our own investors. And most of them are people who obviously have been somewhat successful in their life. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in a position where they can invest in us. And the thing that's so fascinating is that they don't have that much in common. You know, you have those very experienced 
tech entrepreneurs and DAX CEOs and whatsoever. And if you put them all in one room, well, they tend to be male. I guess that's more part of the generation <laughs> that they tend to be, you know, 40 plus. That's the one thing they have in common, you know. But apart from that, you will see they are completely different personalities. They have completely different attitudes to a lot of things. You know, some of them, you know, are super extroverted, aggressive. Some of them are very modest, very careful people. And I think the thing that they all had in common, and I think that's the thing they transport into their organizations, is this persistence. First of all, one thing you see is that no matter how stressful things are, they tend to stick through, right, and not freak out. So they're very good at staying calm and just, you know, continuously believing in things and not just mm -hmm. changing their mind every, you know, five minutes because something changed, you know. So there's a certain level of persistence and there's a certain level of focusing on actual factual problems rather than focusing on, you know, emotions and states. Like they tend to work on or think about, you know, actual impact and really about changing things rather than just status or, you know, things like that. And I think that's part of what they tended to make the culture of their organization, right? So, so most of them built very, I'd say, impact-focused cultures where it's not just about doing the next sell or the next year, where it's really about building something sustainable, right? But apart from that, I think there's a lot of ways to get there, right? And yeah. I don't think there's this one trait that makes you successful. Okay. Well, I mean, these are, of course, personal traits, but you can easily kind of replicate them okay. or put them on an organization as well. You right? can put it on a culture level. Yeah, I think one thing maybe to add is what I quite often observe is that most of the successful organizations, cultures I observe, they focus on basically growth mindset rather than is mindset. So the focus very much lies on building a culture in which people basically don't take things as given, but focus on basically growing themselves as personalities, right? And rather than saying, hey, I'm a person and this is my qualification and this is what I will do, it's more about focusing on what could be rather than what it is. And I think that's usually embedded into the culture. Yeah. And that's an important trait to focus on when you build a culture. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's the curiosity aspect of it. And indeed this mindset of yeah, not being satisfied with the status quo, you know, always try to figure out, okay, what can be next? Very interesting. And the point about the focus on the problem and like where you can make the biggest possible impact. Absolutely. And a lot of the mistakes that you see is actually, yeah, getting, it's getting wrong at that very point because it's something that isn't that much of a problem as it's, well, it perceives to be. Yeah. Getting towards the end, almost final question. From the lessons that you learned being a CEO of Vittorio in this case, what would be a do and what would be a don't that you would give as advice to CEOs that want to kind of, you know, make a bigger impact or aspiring CEOs that want to start a company? Mm, that's not sure if I'm at a point yet to give people advice, but I'll try. You're one I, step ahead. I can, I can very much focus on the don'ts. Like I know a lot more about the don'ts than the do's, <laughs> but I think... And maybe that's part of the advice, right? Like, I guess it's important to try out a lot of things and learn quickly. I guess that's pretty obvious, right? So the don'ts, in order to know what's a don't, you just need to try a lot of things and basically fail quickly. I think this is a known fact. One thing I learned, and I'd say it is a big do, is especially in the beginning of founding a company, but even at later points, is it's important to involve people who have skin in the game. And building a company, especially an AI company in a way that 
doesn't exist yet, right? So it's, everything we do is very new and different. And this is a very big challenge, obviously. And it's very unlikely that a young university grad can fix this problem by themselves, right? So for us, what really was so far very, very important for us is, is basically bringing in experienced people who consult us, but who also have skin in the game in a sense that they consult us, not just because they want to help us, but they consult us because they will benefit if this thing is successful, right? And, yeah. and I'm mostly talking by bringing in you know, business angels, investors, successful, experienced VCs, and really listening to them. And that doesn't mean you need to do exactly how they tell you, right? I mean, sure. if you talk to 10 VCs, everyone will tell you something slightly different, but there will be certain paths that, you know, like, that you see opening up, right? Where you say, ah, a lot of, you know, experienced people guide us into this direction. And sometimes there's things that people with experience quite quickly see that I myself was not able to see, right? And for us, I think it was very important to bring these people on board to make sure they have shares in the company and they invest. We basically don't take much advice from people who don't invest in our company because they tend to just say things. But if somebody really has invested hundreds of thousands of euros of private money into your company, they don't just give you a random advice and hope it works. You know, they think about what they will tell you because they know if they tell you something stupid, this might, you know, become very hurtful. Yeah. yeah. And so, so I think bringing in these people and mostly listening to these people and really getting their advice. And I mean, when it comes to the core of your business, a lot of it, you need to figure out yourself. But when it comes to all the things around it, you know, like how to build a sales team, how to set up a customer success team, how to raise money. Those are things that hundreds of companies have done before you, right? And these are things that people can help you with. And there we really rely on the input. And we just basically, you know, consult a lot with these people around us. And the thing we're left with is basically deciding, you know, what to do. But this is often a joint decision in a bigger setting, and not just a CEO advice. decision, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, at the end, that's why the CEO is there. It comes down to that's to the final point. But yeah, the point about skin in the game is super important. Well, thank you very much, Patrick, for sharing the journey about your company, Retorio. I'm fascinated with the concepts behind it, the thinking behind it, and yeah, the real impact that it can create. Thanks for sharing the lessons that you learned in a various number of areas, product strategy, sales, and your last final comments. We're going to follow how your company evolves from here. Thanks. Thanks, Todd, for having me. <laughs> and this ends my conversation with Patrick. And I hope you enjoyed it. If so, please leave a review on iTunes. And if it inspired you, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on the mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Dr. Patrick Uhler, co-founder and CEO of Retorio. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book, or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. 
And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.